This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So I'd like to introduce Amir, who works for DS, which I can say, which apparently most people can't. And he's going to give us, like, this, is a, this is a personal talk on uh, a bunch of his journey over many years to where he is. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I guess first things first, um, if you could put your hands together for Donna, Steve, Sarah, the, uh, I guess the volunteers, and especially the AV guys have done such a stellar job that we forget. And I hope to have done two things uh, with that. One is to wake you up because it's the end of the day, but also make the guys next door feel really jealous because they probably think I've had two rounds of applause. So I think I'm really good. Okay. Um, as uh, Donna mentioned, yeah, this talk is about my journey over the last two and a half years with DS, and also the journey that DS has gone through um, in that time, um, going from building products right to building the right products. Quick shout out, we are looking for a um, senior UXer to join our Sydney office, so if you know anybody, please jump onto our careers page, or you can ping me afterwards, we'd like to hear from you. Okay, so... Um, my talk today, I'm going to split it into four sections. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of a background and context so we're sort of all aligned. And then I'm going to break the journey into sort of three key phases, which I'm calling chapters. I guess the first question I want to ask is, why should we be building the right products? And um, I'm surprised that uh, my friend here, Luke, used a quote by Peter Drucker. This is two in one day, which is interesting. So it's a beautiful quote. There is surely nothing quite so useless as doing with great efficiency what should not be done at all. So this quote is actually taken by Eric Ries from his book, The Lean Startup. And Eric goes on to say that the modern corporation, the modern organisation is really efficient to just really shit at working on the right stuff. Right? We've got a finite amount of social capital, human capital and intellectual capital and we're wasting it on doing things that just don't matter. Now, I'm an industrial designer by trade, so I thought I'd use two examples to, I guess, influence, oh, well, I guess, tell you about the point of what's a good product and what's not a good product. So many of you probably know Alessi. You know this kettle. It's a very famous kettle designed by an American architect back in 1985. What's great about it, it's, it's playful, it's beautifully manufactured, stainless steel, chrome, um, a weld line that can barely see, and it's got a, a magnetic base for induction cooktop. That's back in 1985. So it's a well-built product. But when you start reading the reviews, you start to question that. So one of the fundamental problems with this product is, so there's, a, there's this plastic nozzle thing that goes on the spout, and it's supposed to whistle so when, the, when the water's boiled. But the irony is, to use the kettle, you've got to pull this gizmo thing out. You burn your freaking hand every time. So the amount of money has gone into manufacturing this product but is it the right product? So what do I mean by the right product in today's context? Product that's feasible, viable, and desirable. It can question that this product is not very desirable. Maybe it's because people bought it thinking it's really beautiful and sexy, but then they went and bought another kettle to actually use for day-to-day. -day. So it's a waste of effort and resource. Shits me. Anyway, I can say that because I'm an industrial designer by trade. OXO. 
other products. So they make stock, and as part of that, they make uh, measuring cups. And it was an American inventor who was at home. I think he was baking cookies or cake or something. And he got frustrated doing um, things that many other people seem to do. And I hope this picture comes up. How many of you guys do this? How many people? Sorry, I shouldn't say guys. I'm learning. Um, you squint or you raise the measuring cup onto your eye or you sort of bow down or you break your you know, knees or back to try and sort of uh, figure out what the measurement is. I don't know it's first world problems, I understand that, but he at least put his brain into good use and he built, uh, I guess, prototype and um, designed this product. It's a beautiful. How many of you guys actually have this product? Awesome. Oh, look at you. Love it. Do you love it? It's good? Great. So basically it means you don't have to bend over or raise the measuring cup, but you can actually look at it from the top and figure out how much content you've got in that cup. Beautiful product. Built well, but it's also the right product because it solves the problem. Now, for today's talk, what am I, I guess the context of product, keeping it quite loose in general. So, websites, web applications, native applications, IoTs, connected devices, chips in your wrist, or whatever you might want to call. So, I'm keeping it quite loose, so hopefully, you can, you can sort of connect my conversation with something you're doing day to day. So, I'm going to ask you a favor now because I want to get a sense of who's in the room. So, if you can jump onto that URL with your device, phone, tablet, or whatever, or if you think the internet's really crap, just get ready to SMS that number. Now, for people who are using the web, don't log in. Just wait on that screen. And I'm going to ask you guys a couple of questions. Ask you people a couple of questions. Okay. So who's in the audience? Looks like the majority of you are working on products, which is good. So for people, who, for people who are working on a product, I've got another question for you then. How many of you feel like the product you're working on is the right product for your end users or customers? So no is actually higher than I anticipated. I'm not sure. Okay. That's a scary number, isn't it? 50% of you are confident that you're working on the right product. Interesting. Wow. Hang on, it's even dropping. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> okay. Well, relevant to my talk, but uh, I was hoping that was a bit higher. All right, so the story begins. Um, Stanford Interactive, I was with them for eight years. Rest in peace, they've now been sucked up by PwC. And back in 2013... <laughs> I know the PwC people, it's okay. It's all right. Um, Back in 2013, I was working with a BA at a, at a client, and she came to me and said, oh, guess what, Amir? Um, we've decided to bring our design capability in-house. You th- you'd be awesome at leading and sort of, you know, building that practice. And I said, well, I didn't think the client had or any interest, you know, in building out design capability. Go, no, 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 I don't work for the client. I work for Dias. I said, Dias who? She said, Dias. I go, Dias? No, 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 Dias. I go, sorry, I don't speak Latin. You've got to speak English with me. So I hadn't even heard of the company. So I decided to go and have a look. I know. It's so easy to judge, isn't it? <laughs> tell you what, it took me six months to build up the courage to go and work for a company that had a logo like that. <laughs> but reading between the lines, the sentiment was true then and it is true now. They were fantastic and still are at bringing ideas to life. And that logo lasted 10 years, so hey, why not? Um, 
And when I started talking to the rest of the community, I go, hey, have you heard of this company called Deers? People say, yeah, yeah, these guys are fantastic at delivering, they're fantastic at building products. We've got no ego. So I thought, well, why not? I took the challenge. I kept my shirt on, but I took the challenge. After another three months of conversations with the leadership team, the directors, the management team, I started to get a sort of get a continuous sentiment that DS is fantastic at delivering products, and they understood and appreciated the importance of design. But unfortunately, they, um, they had to rely on external design vendors and other agencies and partners, or in fact deal with sort of the internal design capability of their client, which really impacted the quality and the delivery of, I guess, what they did really well. So they just said, it just made sense, Amir, we build products right, we want, we want to now build the right products. Can you help us with that? So just recently, I thought, well, as for this talk, I said, I'll go and interview a few of our senior consultants who've been at DS for a while. And I asked them three questions. I said, um, before I started, or even further back than that, four or five years ago, um, what did you think DS did really well? What did you think they didn't do well? And where do you think you are now? So consistent messages. They were doing Agile before Agile was, like, was a mainstream. They were building products right. They were delivering. They were making companies hum. They were building quality software that had 100% uptime. Right? So they were fantastic at delivery. They were, excuse me, they were practicing engineering practices that people today still don't know. Um, you know continuous integration, continuous deployment, test-driven development, extreme programming, microservices. These were a jargon to me about two years ago. So these guys were and still are building products, right? They're building quality. And sort of I use this analogy that, you know, if you want to get a Formula One car built, you come to Deers, right? We're almost like a Formula One sort of engineering crew. Quality, speed, efficiently. Get something out, but make sure it's done right. And sometimes we're practicing, and I guess uh, we're competing with companies who run their um, <laughs> development practices like this. They get something up in three weeks, and spends another six months down and not working. So this, we build products right. And then I asked him the second question. I said, okay, so what are we not doing really well? It's the sad news, right? It's not about the fact that we're lazy. They didn't know what questions to ask. They just trusted that the client had already validated the idea was the right idea or the product was the right product. They didn't know what questions to ask, who to see, how to understand users, in effect, it was just too difficult. They were just expecting to design, um, to be chucked over the fence, and they would just go and build it. So they weren't really building the right products. So in effect, this was the challenge that I had. Um, as many people know, I've got I guess, a way of working. It's been working for me for the last 16 years. And it's been working for me still. <laughs> and this is my process. I'm happy to share it with you. <laughs> But there was a bit of method to the madness, and this is, I guess, where the three chapters begin. I guess the first chapter was all about building a foundation. So as the director said, we understand and appreciate design is important, but we have no idea where to begin. And so one of the first things I did, not a good UXer would do, was just observe. And I told the directors, I said, listen, I'm going to spend the first two months, I'm not going to do much, I'm just going to watch and learn and listen. See how you guys operate, see how you deal with clients, customers, users, how you sell, how you deliver, and just try to get a sense of who you are. And as part of that, what I was really doing was assessing, assessing their level of sort of design maturity, the maturity to be able to build the right product, ask the right questions. And another challenge was to um, 
No, not to be drunk, because that just doesn't work, especially if you're having lots of beer as a practitioner. But um, it's not to be a bottleneck. So I was a designer of one with many other responsibilities from the leadership perspective. So I had to make sure that I wouldn't fuel the sort of the argument that, you know what, design is just slowing our delivery down too much. So I know it sounds really archaic, but one of the first things I did was I wrote a document, paragraphs explaining the standard user-centered design activities and techniques. But they were written sort of to be customer-facing. So our account managers and client engagement managers could literally copy and paste into their proposals, make some tweaks. I had some images as well that could copy and paste because I couldn't be in Sydney and Melbourne at the same time, being in every pitch and every conversation. And the other purpose of this was to, hold, I guess, help educate our, I guess, leadership team and the people who are going to be client-facing to begin with to go, you know, start to start having these conversations about the importance of building the right product using human-centered design practices. And then I started sharing these with the rest of the consultants, our BAs, testers, um, you know, software front-end and back-end engineers and everybody else from the organisation. And I guess that led to our first success in terms of bringing in, I guess, design into a client. So we already had an engagement with Emmy Bank. Uh, we had a team there ready to build the second generation of the iOS app, but a sort of software engineering and BAs in the team. And um, they had a, like a contractor designer, so um, she needed some support. So they managed to convince, I guess, we managed to convince a client to get five days of my time to go and help out. So I rocked up, looked at the wall, looked at the backlog, looked at the sort of features and the priorities, and I thought, there's some stuff in here that just doesn't make sense. And when I asked them, look, how did you sort of build this backlog? I said, look, a couple of our leadership teams sit within sort of other banks, so we're doing what the other banks are doing, and they're not banking really well, so it just makes sense. And I just asked them, I said, listen, you're about to spend hundreds and thousands of engineering dollars on DS developers. You're really comfortable sort of making, you know, spending that much money based on a bit of a hunch around the leadership team? Why don't you give me three days? So in that three days, I went and did some really quick and dirty research. Um, mostly it was group-based, but don't worry, Ruth, where are you if you're in the room? We did make sure that we didn't sort of um, have that group, groupthink effect, um, which is obviously very important when you've got a bunch of people in the same room. But the outcome was great. Basically, looking at these insights, we realized that, you know what, some of those features and functionality was just not going to make sense and, in fact, have the opposite effect on the customers. So we, through that, managed to influence the reshaping of the backlog. So I guess that's our first success story in trying to build the right product for our customers. We also practiced it on ourselves. This lovely logo, it wasn't just me that didn't like it. Pretty much everyone in our company didn't like it. They felt it was really aged. So we said, well, fuck it. Why don't we sort of go through this process? Why don't we build a new product, build the right product, build a new logo and identity? So we sent out a survey, a survey internally. We also um, sent out a survey to come up a couple of our clients and friendlies. And through the design process, we rebranded. And this is the, this is the point I sort of can sort of do a proud, what is it? The, uh, Denise Jacobs said, you know, the power stand. Right? So that logo was done about two and a half years ago, and it's been really good. It's helped to sort of rejuvenate the organization. So that was chapter one, sort of setting the foundation and understanding. Second chapter was all about growing, growing the capability, growing the maturity, and also experimenting with some things. So by this time, a year had gone by. Um, I've had one hire in Sydney. I've had one hire in Melbourne. We started to get involved with our client engagement managers. We started to sort of get a, um, have earlier conversation with our clients. 
Um, instead of talking about tech stacks, we're starting to talk about users and customers. And um, it was about this point that we realized well, we've, got, we've got some other challenges that we need to be able to, um, I guess, resolve. The problem was that clients would still come to us with the idea already set. We weren't brought in early enough. We were still given a brief of, hey, you know what, we've got an app, we've got this idea, can you go and build it? And as much as we had human-centered design as part of the delivery process, so at least we were trying to build the right product, the idea was already set. And if the idea was wrong, there was no way we were going to be able to move it. Um, so we weren't really building the right products, and we also didn't have a process to be able to sort of convince the clients and be able to repeat this thing. So when I looked back over the last two and, a, two and a half years, I looked at all the activities that I did to get us to where we are now, and I've broken them down into sort of inward-facing and outward-facing activities. So maybe people who are sort of take, um, moving into a leadership role or having the challenge of trying to sort of change the organisation a little bit, some of these things might be helpful. So first and foremost, I still had to make sure that our design team, our research team, uh, built credibility internally, right? We had to make sure that we built the trust within our consultants so they would be, I guess, comfortable when we came in to help them deliver, that we weren't going to slow things down. Still had to educate and train. So, you know, we've got 100, cons well, 100 staff, about 80 consultants across Melbourne and Sydney. So we had to make sure that we tapped every one of them in the shoulder to a certain extent to give them sort of basic understanding. And obviously work on the process. And as part of that, yeah, a lot of one-on-ones. We got involved in induction just to make sure we did that sort of U UX 101 in the five minutes that we had with that new starter. Um, we did a lot of brand bags or internal lunch presentations. Um, you might call it something else. So outward-facing goals. Um, obviously, we still had to consult. We had to be billable. Um, we had to get involved in pre-sales. We had to sort of ensure that we, you know, when a client came to us with a requirement or a brief, that we sort of helped shape the engagement. Um, I had to show some thought leadership, right? We had to start to get external clients to understand, well, hang on, DS knows, you know, design thinking, human-centered design. And as part of that, sort of getting the DS brand out there. And so we did a bunch of stuff. A lot of pairing with our consultants while we were on gigs. A lot of over-servicing. So um, we were still struggling to get sort of our designers into our engagements where we had our developers. But we said, fuck it, let's just give our designers for free. Let's just give the client a bit of a taste of what it's, what it's like to have that sort of, you know, I guess the quality and the user evangelism sort of in that process. Um, presented a lot at clients, on conferences, started to sort of get the brand out by sponsoring. And basically all these activities came together and started to create a demand which is exactly what we wanted to be able to grow. And in effect, it was the catalyst for me to be able to grow the team in Sydney and Melbourne, and then obviously augment by having sort of, sort of those proxy practitioners, be it a front-end developer or a BA, to help support when we sort of didn't have enough capacity. Something else that we did, yes, it's yet another diagram like everybody else, um, was at that, at that time we were starting to sort of play with design sprints. And, you know, the double diamond effect, uh, the double diamond methodology. So the idea being we wanted to be able to sell a small engagement to a client, two to three weeks, where we could help to really validate if the idea was the right idea or if they the, had the right product in mind. So the idea was basically learn about the organisation, about the client, build domain knowledge, empathise with their end users and customers, um, go and explore, go wide, diverge, come up with as many ways of solving and providing those pains and gains for the user, 
coming back and focusing on a few ideas and sort of fleshing out the detail, going wide again, designing, solving, and coming back, picking one or two and prototyping and building. And the idea was in two to three weeks, we can sort of go through this process and convince the client, hey, you know what, your product's got legs, let's go ahead. Or you know what, how about you go and think about it or why don't we help you sort of reshape the idea or product. We were really lucky because we had a friendly that we could try this, I guess, in effect, the design sprint on. So Cow um, is a manufacturer of skincare hair, hair care products in Australia. They also have some laundry products. And you, you buy them through places like Priceline and other pharmacies. Um, they came to us with this brief. So, yep, they wanted to increase sales through product advocacy with their stakeholders and, I guess, customers, and they wanted to use sort of training and education as a way of doing that. But when you read between the lines, they just wanted a training platform. Dears, can you build us a training platform? But I guess with it, because they were friendly, we could sort of say, yeah, great idea, we're going to get up this training platform and we're going to pin it over here, we haven't forgotten about it. But let us go through this process, see what we find out. Now, the sort of activities that I'm about to show you, they're not rocket science. We've talked about it over the last two days. So we did, you know, mystery shopping, research, contextual inquiries. We started to better understand who the customers were, who the people were that were selling. We started building personas, user journeys, customer journeys, you know, all the artifacts that you're probably familiar with. Did a lot of co-designing. So took those insights and with the stakeholders and other people within the organisation, tried to solve them. But what was the brilliant thing about the outcome was, and we hadn't actually expected this, was that we realised they didn't need a digital product. In fact, the digital product wouldn't work with the current business model they had. People at Priceline aren't allowed to have any form of technology on them when they're on the store. So we said, you know what? There's a tweak you can make in your business model. Why don't you go and experiment with that for six months and see if your sales goes up? So we convinced ourselves, we convinced the client out of getting a gig with us. Right? We said, don't waste your money, don't get us in. Why don't you go and try that and then come back to us if it doesn't work? So this is really exciting. We're really proud of that, I guess, um, that case study. Now, who doesn't like French fries, right? You probably think, what's that all about? <laughs> um, something else we learned during the second chapter was that we were selling design and UX like it was French fries. Hey, client, you've got our team here. Would you like some UX with that? Can we just, just get you some UX on the side? <laughs> Two for one? <laughs> it just wasn't working. A lot of our clients are mature. They've already got design practices. They go, no, 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 you know what? We've got a CX team. We've got an insights team. That's fine. Just get your you know, delivery team in here. It was really frustrating. But what we did was change the way we were asking the question. And we had immediate results. So we started talking about outcomes. So we stopped talking about who was going to do the work, but we started to identify gaps in our clients so then we can go, you know what, can we help you with identify who your users are, understanding your touch points, understanding the current behaviours your customers have on your website, understanding the pain points, understanding X, Y, Z. And we started to identify gaps, and then the clients go, actually, you know what, yeah, we do need a bit of help with that. Yeah, we do need to fill that gap. And so the idea was, you know, if you've got the client here, you've got your stakeholders with a bucket of money, and you've got your product teams where our teams are in. Well, so we took a two-pronged approach with lots of questioning. So we've got our client engagement managers working with the stakeholders, asking those sort of questions that they've learned to ask about, well, you know, have you, have you, you, know, have you, um, have you validated the idea? What's your value proposition? Um, do you know how your customers currently sort of touch your brand and various channels? 
and started to wait for that, I guess, the answer being no, or I'm not sure, so they could sort of pounce and go, you know what, we can help you with that. And our consultants were doing the same thing. So our consultants were on the ground. The people who were already in there were starting to go, well, hang on, we're building this product. Who are the customers? Who are the pers- do you have any personas? Um, is there any user journeys? And we mapped that out. Um, do we have some friendlies? Do we have some usability testing planned? And again, waiting for the opportunity for the, for the team to go, actually, no, we haven't. So the consultants can pounce and go, you know what? We can help you with that. And that was a catalyst to, guess, bring, I guess, design thinking and bring our designers into the full engagement for our client. So chapter three, setting a framework. So it's about you know, two and a half years gone. We're probably roughly around here. And the idea was, well, now we need to find a way of being able to repeat this every single time for every single engagement. So a year's gone by. Um, we've got eight you know, UXs within Sydney and Melbourne. We've had a few projects on our belt. So we've got some case studies where we could sort of showcase. And we're heavily engaged with the sales process. And our BAs and, I guess, engineers and QAs well, pretty much well understand the importance of design. They don't necessarily know how to practice it, but they can start to use some of the words and start to convince the project team. And so at this point, we said, well, you know what, let's start to firm up and start to create some non-negotiables. So the same way as our engineers practice test-driven development, CI, CD, um, it was basically we say, you know what, if you, if you don't let our engineers practice this way, we don't want the gig. So we started to, I guess, build some non-negotiables from, the, I guess, the idea and the product perspective. So well-articulated value proposition and vision. And if they don't know how to do that or don't have it, we're helping with that. Access and understanding to their customers. And again, we would help with them by having that constant conversation, validation, research, usability testing. And the fact that, I guess, user experience of design process was baked in early up front and we're co-leading inception. We weren't previously doing that. Design was sort of being brought in you know, afterwards. But we'd sort of, now we've got technology, business and design from day one. Or in fact, from pre-inception, as we like to call it. And it's been during this phase that I and my team have come across a couple of tools that we found really useful. Um, how many of you have heard of the Business Model Canvas? Probably only about half. It's a great tool, and you can go to the Strategizer website. Uh, basically, it's a template that we use. Within 45 minutes, get a holistic view and build up domain knowledge for our client. So, we, you know, before that, you sort of run some research and stakeholder workshop to get an understanding of the, you know, the, the client, how they work and how they operate. With this template, we do it in about an hour. And in fact, sometimes clients learn more about their business during this process than they did before. So it's a great real tool. BMC, Business Model Canvas. The Value Proposition Canvas is another one, another tool, and it's a subset of the BMC. It basically takes the value proposition and the customers and sort of zooms in. But if you notice, it's in effect a bit of an empathy map on the right-hand side. So you start with your customer, understand the jobs and tasks that they need to do, identify their pains and gains, and then you drive the features and functionality and try to map one-on-one so that every feature and functionality that's being built has to actually address one of those pains and gains. Again, it's a, it's a great canvas to use. And then user story mapping. How many people have used this? Again, probably half. So Jeff Patton's written a book about it. You know, um, we've used it in many clients. This is Swan, just one example. The idea being, in effect, you use a persona or a customer. Map out, the, in effect, the customer journey 
and then use that to build epics and backlogs and sort of story cards, and then sort of define your release plan. So it's very user-centric, but it didn't come from, I guess, the user-centered and design process. Just a word of warning, you'd need a huge space if you want to do it properly because you, it does take up a bit of space. But it's fantastic because everybody gets involved. But what I love about these tools is that they're in effect very customer and user-centric, but they didn't come from the UX or design background. So, if you could do for me, get your phones out again. So what I would like you to do is share your, I guess, um, tools or techniques that you use to help build the right product for your, I guess, your organization, customers that didn't traditionally come from user experience or the design. So I'm going to keep the screen up for about 20 seconds, just start typing in, um, and if, I'll share these, obviously, slides so you guys can go and do your own homework. Yes, I've just read about the Kano model. It was a bit of a head fuck, but it's an amazing model. Um, I highly recommend people looking into it. Um, oh, it's going crazy. Woo! So, yeah, Lego we know about. Well, design thinking, I guess, comes from design, but it's good to pull up. Lean. Okay, I haven't tested this this much. This is going to be berserk. So, if you have epilepsy, maybe don't look at the screen until it's... Uh, <laughs> YOLO. What's YOLO? Okay, MDP, wow, Convo I've heard of, CI, it's gone crazy, Woo. I will share this with you. <laughs> Hang on, what are we laughing at, am I missing out? What, what, what am I missing out? Alright, M- moving on, <laughs> moving on, okay. So what does the ideal engagement look like for us now? If we're rabbits here, we're a shitload of carrots. <laughs> but um, for us, the engagement that we want to work on is one where the client is at the early stage of their product lifecycle. Okay? So they haven't built anything yet. They've got the appetite to be challenged. They trust us. And their key goal is to reduce waste because that's one of our core values of this. We want to reduce waste. We don't want to build stuff that our engineers don't want to build stuff. We don't want to design stuff that their end customer is not going to want to use and the client's paying money for. From a business problem perspective, we want to work on, I guess, engagements where the client either doesn't know what the problem is or if they know what the problem is, haven't actually started building anything. And from an engagement perspective and team structure perspective, that there's a product champion at the client. We talked about product owners. Um, they're quite rare still. But someone who understands the domain and understands the product and can sort of be in bed with the users with us so they can start to make the right decisions. That we're co-located virtually or physically. They don't have to be on the same space, but at least be there present through some form of hangout or you know, Skype or something all the time. We're cross-functional. But the most important thing, we want to co-lead or lead the engagement. We want to take on the risk. We want to say, client, give the risk to us. Let us be accountable. Let us have skin in the game. Because that's the only way that we can hopefully shape and redirect the product to be the right product for our customers. Now, I'm just thinking, I do have some time. So I'm going to um, get, I've got another poll, which is basically questions. So you can, while you're talking to me, if you don't get too distracted, you can start typing some questions. If I do have time at the end, I'll try and answer the top ones. And you can sort of vote for your questions. But look at me as well, please. <laughs> um, so you know how I, when I um, just recently um, interviewed some of our consultants, and the third question I asked them was, where do you think we are now? So this is what they're starting to say. 
and it's showing that they started to build a bit of confidence. Be able to start to understand, I guess, the needs and importance of talking about the user, understanding the market. Um, you know, pushing back on the client. We're going to talk about projects versus products in a second, but you know, having a bit of a correct mindset. So, you know, two and a half years on, I like to think we are starting to build the right products for our customers. But we're not there yet, and we've still got some challenges, there's some ongoing challenges. The first one is, end of the day, we're a vendor, right? We get engaged, maybe six months, maybe 12 months. Yes, we release and we push stuff into the market, but often you don't know if your product's the right product until it's been in the hands of your customers for three, six, 12 months sometimes. Unfortunately, we don't get visibility of that. A client don't often come back and sort of share those results with us, unless they're really friendly. Sorry, some of our clients' analytics is just shit. <laughs> Either, oh, she's over there, or yeah, she's got the login, or now somebody set it up, but they don't work here anymore. Actually, we've lost the login, or actually, here's the login, go and figure it out yourself. Which makes it really hard for someone who wants to take, a, I guess, the um, responsibility and the skin in the game, especially for existing products, to find out what is currently wrong with the product. So we can't look at their analytics and the, sort of the quantitative data. So that's a really challenge that we're trying to sort of overcome at the moment. As I said, we've got about 80 or 90 consultants across Melbourne and Sydney, and they're just some of them who just love to sort of work at the micro level and solve those problems, those technical problems. So they don't have, the, I guess, the confidence or sometimes even the interest to take a step up and ask the client, is this feature the right feature? Is this product the right product? Is this idea the right idea? So we do sometimes get those challenges where some of our, I guess, you know, consultants just go about and build good quality solutions, but don't ask some of those questions. Product ownership, as I said, it's still rare. A lot of people get pointed out, oh, you can be a product owner because you've been here the longest. And so we struggle to work with clients who've got, I guess, a proper product owner or sort of product champion that could help guide and steer the ship. I'm going to talk about this in the next slide, but there's a big difference between project mindset and a product mindset. Unfortunately, we get given projects. Yeah, but he's a, you know, finite date that we need to deliver by. He's a fixed budget. We're giving you a team, but we're going to rip the team away at the, at the end, and we're going to give it to a business-as-usual team. So can you deliver a product for us? How many, you've got, how many of you people have built IKEA furniture, spent two, three hours, right? You know, you cut your fingers, sweat and tears, and at the end of it, you know it's a crappy furniture, but you go, oh, I love it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's the IKEA effect. And the notion is our clients do spend sometimes weeks and months putting a business case together to get the funding to get us in. So by then, they fall in love with the idea or the product, which makes it very hard when we try and tell them, you know what, your baby's a bit ugly. It's not the right product. They just don't want to hear it. I guess we probably hit that the most. So what have I learned over the last um, two and a half years? Um, first one, I didn't have a plan when I first started. But that's okay. Because I thought, well, what I could do is what we do typically is understand, right? research, observe, and then start to sort of synthesize what, what the strategy you need to deploy to, I guess, you know, I guess, um, you know um, deliver on your remit. For me, building the capability of this was really easy. The reason it was really easy was that our leadership and, I guess, the owners gave me full remit and full responsibility. The door was open. I said, Emir, we don't know how to do this. You do, you just go and do it. So I had no resistance. So if you're working within organisations where your, I guess, management or top tiers don't really understand design thinking and design process, 
obviously you're going to struggle a lot, um, a lot more. But we've heard some success stories about you know, how people have transformed organisations like ANZ. The right team, the right mindset and the right time. So we need to have the right team of you know, consultants, BAs, IMs, engineers, designers. They need to have the right mindset to ask the question, you know what, before we do anything, we need to challenge the customer and understand if this is the right idea or the product that we're going to work for. And be brought in as early as possible, at pre-inception. Have that first coffee conversation with a client. Just start to plant the seed that, you know, this is the expectation we're going to have. We're going to challenge you. If, you, you know, if your baby's ugly, don't be offended, but we're going to tell you. <laughs> we work with ginormous organisations, right? Tier 1 organisations, your banks, your insurance companies. But even they sometimes struggle to clearly articulate the vision and the value proposition for the product or idea that they got us in for. So this assumption that the bigger the organisation, the better understanding they've got of what they need to do is false. So we've learned to always ask those questions and challenge every client, doesn't matter if they're a startup or a ginormous um, monolith. Let's not sell French fries. <laughs> Let's start selling outcomes. So that's one of the things that I've learned that as much as I've been practicing design and you guys, you know, you people have been practicing design for many years, I can't expect people to understand the value of design. But what I can do is sort of convince them about the outcome, which is something that they can understand. And finally, and this is the thing that I guess the challenge that we're trying to address is that a fixed mindset is one when you do think projects, end deadline, fixed budget, team, come in, roll off, goes back to BAU. And we know what happens when products go back to business as usual teams. They die, right? <laughs> Nobody gives them any love. Whereas a product mindset assumes there is no fixed deadline or budget, but you've got to iterate, build small little things, understand, see what the market's doing, adapt, iterate, and so forth. And you're constantly growing and working on the product for two to three years from now. Just to finish off, it's a really proud moment when one of our client engagement managers came to me and said, Mia, guess what? I had a startup who came to me just before and said, Hi, um, can I have one of your engineers to help me build this new dashboard for a product that I've got? Now, we're not physical, right? So he didn't physically punch him. But he pushed back and said, no. What you need is a consultant to first understand who the customers are, understand the value proposition. And if the product's right, then we'll give you one of our engineers to build the right product. So it's a beautiful story of where we've come from and where we're going. Just to finish off on a quote, um, again, the Lean Startup book. In every industry, we see endless stories of failed launches, ill-conceived projects, and large batch death spirals. I consider this misuse of people's time a criminally negligent waste of human creativity and potential. So I guess my call out to you, guys, um, to you people are, let's start challenging. Let's start asking those questions so we don't waste that finite amount of social, financial, intellectual capital that we've got working on the wrong things. Let's try and make a difference. Thank you. So, we've got some questions. Um, oh, do we? I hope we do. Okay, sorry. battles did you have to fight to get this approach adopted? Um, <laughs> I've only read the first question, so that wasn't very funny. Have I missed another one? <laughs> I'll go through them. Um, not many internal battles. Probably the battles that we're trying to, I guess, um, address now is more client-facing. 
it's actually we're struggling to get more of our clients because clients still come to us thinking you guys are fantastic at delivery, right? And we're sort of trying to change God. No, 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 we do more than delivery now, right? We build the right products for you. We've got design baked in. So, um, but internally, not much at all. As I said, I had free reign. Go, I mean, you know how to do this. We don't. Just have a go. Very supportive. Um, what is the, uh, what is the airspeed velocity of an unleaded swallow? Oh, it's a good question. So, um, hey? African or European? <laughs> this lady's the professional. She'll be able to answer that question for you. Uh, it puts it into sprint time frames. How do you schedule your UX person into sprint? Okay, so um, I guess you've listened to iSurvive and a bunch of other organizations. We keep it quite loose and rigid. We don't, and as, as much as I said we have a framework, we try to be really flexible. We make sure we've got designer research baked in. doesn't matter if it's one or two people, depending on the size of the organization. And we just try to do as much as we could, can at the right time to be able to feed the backlog and we, I guess, feed our delivery team. So, um, Every, every engagement is different because the size of the problem is different and the maturity of the client is different. Uh, monetary value on your UX. Um, the great thing is I've never had to. From day one, as I said, our directors understood the value of design. Okay? So we haven't internally had to have an ROI conversation around where we get, get design brought in. Um, in fact, the conversations has been more around how big should it be, how many designers should we have to engineers. At the moment, we're sitting about oh, one, one to ten. Um, but no, no, no struggle. Again, the, the, the struggle we've had is trying to convince the clients, you know what, you can get this to do the whole end-to-end. -end. Uh, what makes a good product owner? Ooh, good question. Um, so for us, I guess a product owner is not necessarily someone who's been there the longest. But I guess someone who, who can tap into the different, I guess, hierarchy of the organization, understand, I guess, the vision and the value proposition and where the business wants to go, but it could also sort of ideally understand software delivery. And not many of the product owners do, but that's okay. And one of the things that we're really proud of is that we teach through doing. So uh, a couple of our colleagues talked at Agile Australia where they, in fact, upskilled the product owner at Swan Insurance over a period of, I think, 12 months. Um, do you actually make just software products? Um, IOTs, physical, digital. Okay, so how do you actually then consult on a product or an area or an expertise where you in-house don't have? Like, can, can any client come to you and say, we want to make this? Yep. So you can, some client could come say, we want to make a digital building or something and you guys will get into the construction business? Probably not. So how do you actually differentiate? So we work in the digital space. So we work with hardware, sensors, IOTs. We build a couple of sort of um, devices. We're working with our clients. Um, digital space across all sectors and all domains. But we do build digital solutions, but probably not to the scale of a, um, a building. If we had a big enough team, maybe. But that example, probably not. But we probably tap into any other digital product or solution. One more? Um, does someone, okay, one more up there. Can I have a hug? Sure, who wants a hug? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wicked. All right. Um, how do you schedule a UX person to, we've talked about, how do you manage stakeholders that believe they have the answers? Biggest struggle. They don't want to hear that their baby's ugly. So what we do then, we go, okay, you know what? We think we can steer the ship from inside, from underneath, from the team. So we start the engagement and then start to slowly influence. And we'll get it right probably, maybe, I don't know, 50, 60% of the time. Sometimes, like, not. the clients just set on their ways. This is the product that they want. 
Yeah, we've got to sort of earn money somewhere. But more and more, we're starting to push back. And that's probably something that we need to get used to internally to go, you know what, it's okay to tell the client, you know what, this is not for us. Okay. And as we start to grow and we start to, I guess, you know, get more and more projects that, uh, or products that we like working on, the easier it will become for us to be able to sort of choose what we want to do. But we're not quite there yet. Anyway, I think that's it. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.